Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at the first four verses of 1 John. If you'd like to read along. It says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. And I'm going to predict something in our short time together that by the time we come to our end of this meeting, Many of you who have been suffering throughout the week and maybe throughout your life for a lack of joy and real connection with Jesus Christ will be able to say along with the rest of the saints, our joy is full in the Lord. And so later on, we're going to give many of you an opportunity to give your lives to Jesus Christ. All right. This book was written by a guy by the name of John. And we're going to talk about him just a little bit later. But he's one of my favorite characters in the Bible because he was the man who was known as the one, at least he called himself, as the man whom Jesus loved. And that was a very close, intimate relationship that he had with him. He was a guy who started out in Galilee as a fisherman and ended up in a metropolis of Ephesus in Asia Minor at his latter years. He had traveled a very long distance. I myself had the opportunity to travel that long distance back in the late 90s. Uh, The Lord afforded me the opportunity to get on a plane with a number of people, and we flew out to Bulgaria, and then we hopped on another plane and flew into Istanbul, and we began to work our way down the coast to the seven churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation. Well, one of those places was Ephesus, and it is marvelous. I mean, the ruins there are simply amazing. And as you walk down the long cardo throughout the streets, you notice the bathhouses, the, the library of Celsus, and you have even a brothel there, as well as a long, beautiful, paved, marble way. But before I go any further, I'd like to tell you another story. Now... That is the theological correct story, but here's the other inside story that I'll never forget about Ephesus. And that was that right before we went through the tour, I thought, you know, it's probably a good idea since there is a bathroom here. I'll go ahead and go to the bathroom. Well, in Turkey, they have Turkish toilets. Any of you familiar with Turkish toilets? Well... When they're working pretty good, it's kind of convenient. You kind of get used to it. But this one wasn't working so well. And it so happened that as I pulled a nozzle to flush, water spewed out everywhere and completely covered me from here and all over. And I thought, there's no towels, there's nothing I can do. And so all I had to do was walk out completely wet in the front and the back, 
into the tour. And so I had these looks like, are you okay? Really? Are you okay? Do you need to go back to the bus? No, I'm fine. Do you need a towel? No, I'm fine. Are you sick? No, I'm fine. That's what I'll always remember about Ephesus. Okay, back to the real story. Okay, you're heading down this long marble street. Beautiful white marble. And you, you come upon an amphitheater that was carved out of Mount Pion. And it's an amphitheater that's very imposing. It's huge. In fact, it dates back to the 3rd century. And so we know it was around during the time of Paul and the time of John. This amphitheater seats about 24,000 people. And as you rise, which I did, all the way up to the top, as you look out, the first thing that you think of is, wow, if I fall, I'm going to break a bone. And I don't know how many people did that back in those days, but it seems very unforgiving and very steep. But as you look out, you can see the beautiful harbor street which led out to the harbor. Uh, Ephesus is or was, one of the most fabulous cities in the ancient world. It was a very amazing city in that it was a major seaport of Asia Minor, a major trade route. In fact, it was titled the Supreme Metropolis of Asia. It was a center of worship of Artemis of Diana of the Ephesians, which is a very strange, and I won't give you many details, but if you've seen this statue of Artemis, it's very weird and somewhat vulgar. But she was the goddess of the area. In fact, they had an ancient temple there which stretched about 425 feet long, about 220 feet wide and 60 feet tall. It was considered one of the major, if not one of the uh, ancient wonders of the world. However, it was very wicked. In the old temple of Artemis, you would find at any time asylum for some of the most violent criminals that existed during the day. So if you committed a great crime, you could go to the temple of Artemis and find asylum. The police couldn't get you. You would also find, as you went there, hundreds of priestesses who acted as prostitutes. In fact, one of their, not prophets, but philosophers said that anyone who had entered into the precincts of Ephesus would have to weep because of its immorality. That was the type of place that this was written to. Something else we need to notice about Ephesus is that in John writing this, he made considerations, we believe, for a group of people known as the Gnostics. It comes from the word gnosis, or to know. And there were a group of people who had attached themselves to Christianity who said, I have special knowledge about Jesus Christ and about God. And they started off with a basic premises that follows something like this, that all matter, that is all earthly matter, is evil. And so from the great and amazing God, there were these continuous emanations that finally revealed the one God who created this earth. The Docetic Gnostics believed that all um, flesh was evil. So therefore, when they spoke about Jesus, they said that he was a phantom. He sort of floated along. I mean, you notice that there was no footprints as you followed him. He was more like a ghost. Well, there was another guy by the name of Serenthus who said that the spirit of Christ 
came upon Jesus as he entered his earthly ministry. And as he went to the cross, the spirit of the Christ left him. Now, the interesting thing about this is that the ancient historians uh, Eusebius and Irenaeus quoted Polycarp, who was supposed to be a disciple of the ancient John, as saying this in the bathhouse. It was a place everybody hung out. Once Serinthus entered into the precincts, he was said of the old John that he said these words, Flee! Everyone leave the building unless it fall on our heads because the foe of the truth has entered into our precincts. Kind of a tough guy. Now you hear this in his words when he says, that which we have heard and that which we have seen and that which we have handled with our hands concerning the word of truth. A few more things we need to notice about this. The church, which was there in Ephesus was a very prominent church. You had the sort of who's who of the ancient world there. You had Aquila and Priscilla. You might remember those names. It would be a great name to to name twins, by the way. Apollos, the great orator. It just sounds like a very cool guy. And Timothy served there for many years as a pastor. Paul, the apostle, was there for over three years. And two years he spent teaching in what was known as the school of Tyrannus. And John the Elder, as he was known, was there in the latter part of his years. Now, I'll make just a few more comments about the style. The style of the book of 1 John, if you're looking at the Greek, and I know there's probably many Greek scholars here, I can sense your presence. It was very simple in vocabulary and syntax, the way the words are, are, are worded. However, it is very deep and rich in its theology and its philosophy. Also, it is very practical in the way that it applies the issue of love in a believer's life. So it has become, for believers, one of the most famous, beloved books. And I'll tell you why I like it and why we're here tonight. It's because, number one, I look back through the history, and we haven't gone through First John in quite a while, so it's a good book to go through. But more importantly, is that this book contains in it very seminal truth that will allow us to once again focus on what was really at the heart of the early church. And I think that's where we need to be in a world like we live in, which is so easy to be distracted. Can you say amen to that? I mean, I almost started watching the I mean, you can get distracted in this society. You fell for it, and so it's your fault. Now, because of that, we can lose sight of what the Word of God is saying to us. And I want to make a very passionate appeal to my brothers and sisters tonight. Let's open ourselves completely to the work of God as we study this book. And what I mean is, is I would like to enter into covenant with you that we will not only take notes, discuss certain parts of Greek, and walk away saying, oh, that was a good message, or I was quite bored, I really don't want to know about the latter. But anyway, what I will say is this, let's make a covenant 
that as God reveals things to you and me personally, corporately as a group of people, let's commit together to do what we learn. Amen. Because this congregation has been living with a double-edged sword. Did you know that? You're living with a double-edged sword in that you're continually exposed to great truths of Scripture. And because of that, you have the opportunity and the ability to grow exponentially. However, the other side of that sword is, is that if you and I don't apply it, this is what happens to us. We become very stale and our hearts become callous to the very truths that are able to transform us and make our lives holy in the presence of an amazing God. And that's the last thing that we want. So let's commit to do that together, will you? All right, amen. Let's look back at the text at 1 John chapter 1. Verse 1, he clearly states here, that that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. There are a couple of phrases I want you to notice. The first is that which was from the beginning. Now, there's been a lot of debate from scholars as to what this means. Some will say that which was from the beginning means all the way back to the beginning of time and for beyond that to the heart of God and to the mind of God because it was in the beginning with Him prior to anything that was ever made. There are others who say that this is specifically speaking about the beginning of the work that was viewed and seen by the disciples. And I tend to believe it's both in some sense, but more practically, it refers to what John saw with his own eyes. And what he had handled and what he had seen and what was manifested before him because the term that is used here as for what we have heard and what we have seen, these two phrases are actually just words in Greek, one word apiece. And you find them in the perfect tense. Now, the perfect tense is a tense that says this happened back in history. But it's not punctuated by just happening in the past. It happened in the past with its present result. There is an abiding result that I am living in the context of this truth right now. So, I've heard it with the present result that I'm living it out right now. And you're able to experience it right now. That truth that started back in the beginning with them what they had heard and what they had seen, is continuing on even today with the present result that we are now hearing, seeing, and experiencing and handling the word of truth. One of the great things about Scripture is that it is the word of God. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means that It is as an origin from the Lord. And because it is from God and God is timeless, His words transcend every society. They transcend every situation and are able at every moment and any moment to be applied immediately to the person who hears and sees and experiences it. It was true for John 
But many of us here can say it's true for us even today. I've experienced it. I have seen what God has done. I have heard the wonderful good works. And I have felt in very tangible, real ways in the lives of my friends and believers the amazing work of life from the Son of God. Let's look at verse 2. Witnesses. He says, This life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was from the Father and was manifested to us. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. You don't have to turn there, but it's just on the other page in your Bible. In verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses to His majesty. For He received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to Him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Eyewitnesses. It's pretty hard to discourage an eyewitness. In fact, if you're in a trial and you have to give testimony, a prosecutor or a defender will be looking for an eyewitness. They are key because they can describe exactly what has happened. He says of himself, along with other apostles, that he is an eyewitness to the things that have happened. I want to pause here for a moment and sort of share a story And it's the story of John the Apostle. And I've just mentioned this briefly. But you have to understand that this book, if you really want to understand the context, you need to understand the guy who wrote it. He started out many years earlier as a fisherman from Galilee. He was the son of Zebedee. He was a young Jewish man raised in the proper manner. He lived in a rural community along beside a lake, and he fished. But as he began to grow, he heard a teacher by the name of John the Baptist. And listening to John the Baptist, he, his curiosity began to be pricked. And he, they, a few other fellows started going out and listening to him. And they saw that he was baptizing in the wilderness, and he was saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And as this process was taking place, he was introduced to Jesus Christ. And there was a great and sudden and powerful change in his life. And he, along with others, began to follow after him. Now, the credibility of Jesus is not measured by the people who follow him. Can everyone say amen? Or how about a hallelujah to that? We should show some resemblance, but in reality, Jesus stands alone in perfection in his own attributes. The reason I bring this up is because John in his early years, as we are told in Scripture, had a problem with his temper. In fact, we might send him to anger management classes. Probably he would be court-ordered to do so. He was known as a son of thunder. And he got that name because particularly one time there were a certain group of people that didn't agree with Jesus and the disciples. And he said, Lord, 
Do you want us to call fire down from heaven to, dis- to consume them and destroy them? He says, you don't even know what spirit you're of. And he's probably thinking, yeah, but you don't know what kind of faith guns that I got going on here, you know. Fiery. Not really the type of temperament that you would expect from somebody who was an apostle. He was a follower of Jesus. He was always near. And yet, we see that he had an ambition that's not necessarily the kind of ambition you want when you're going into ministry. It was the kind of ambition that at one point he takes his brother and his mother and they go to Jesus and they say, when you come into your kingdom, please allow that one of my sons sits on your right side and the other sits on your left side. You think that would be okay, Jesus? And then you sort of see James and John kind of hiding around the corner. Good, Mom. Thanks. Good job. I mean, at some point you're thinking, hey, Jesus is going to look at these guys and say, all right, you're fired. You're going to have to go back to following John the Baptist. Right. But we see him at the cross. When everyone else had left, he's there with Jesus' mom and he's there in love with his Savior. He becomes a leader in a movement there in Jerusalem. And then after the destruction of the temple, when he is becoming quite old, he heads off with a group of people to Ephesus, a city of 250,000 people, full of debauchery, completely detached from everything that he has known. But here's the greater story in the life of John. By the time he wrote this, it was somewhere between 85 and 90 B.C., and he's well into his, possibly his 80s. This book continually shouts, love, love, love. If you say that you love God, but you hate your brother, he says, you're a liar. If you have fear, he says, love really isn't perfected in you the way that it should be. He said, for God is love. In fact, there's a story told about the age John, when he got so old and he was unable to go to the studies anymore. He would rise a little bit and, and, and say as he left, everyone left for the meetings, children, love one another, for this was the commandment of our Lord. So you see a guy that travels from a hot-headed, ambitious young man, tamed, and controlled and character molded by God so that in the latter years of his life, he is consumed with the issue of love. Now, if you'll bear with me, I'll tell you another story. And this will probably won't be the last time, but at least it will be for the next few months. I want to share with you just a little story of my growing up years. And the reason I want to do that is because I want to relate someone who was an apostle with somebody that you know. I grew up in a pastor's home. My dad was a pastor. His dad was a pastor. Uh, nobody else in our family would actually admit to being a pastor. So as far as we know, I think that's, they were the only two. It was a small town, a town of about 180 people. And that was it. There were three people in my graduating class. 
So you can imagine I taught, I graduated top three in my class. <laughs> but I, something happened to me. You know, I don't have the kind of testimony that says, well, you know, I used to drive around and have, you know, drink 400 gallons of heroin a day or whatever people used to do. <laughs> Actually, I felt like making something like that up. But I came to the Lord at seven years of age. And you think, man, you must have been a, a really rotten kid. And actually, I was. But I can remember, my dad was a pastor, and they gave altar calls, like just like we do here. And I came down to the front, and this was what my dad said. I was the only one. It was a small church. And uh, he turned to the congregation. He held me in front of him, and he says, well, I don't know if he knows what he's doing, so we're going to go home and pray with him. He went home and prayed with me. The next week, they have an altar call. I go down, and he does the same thing. And I'm thinking, come on, Dad, what if we get in a car accident or, you know, I'm accidentally hurt on the playground? So he prayed with me, and he talked with me, and finally, it took a third Sunday to get saved, and I finally I went down to the altar call, and I was looking at my dad like, Dad, I just... And I prayed with him to receive the Lord. And Jesus became my Lord at seven years of age. Now, at age eight, my father died. And because of that, I developed one of the worst tempers that you could ever imagine. Now, imagine this. I know it's going to be hard to. You look at me right now and you think, he must be so gentle and kind. But I was the skinniest, sickliest, ill-tempered kid that you ever met. I had the chip on my shoulder this big, and I would fight with anybody for any reason. And I would always be convicted and feel like when they would give an altar call, I should probably go down this Sunday. I'm sure there's somebody who saw me this last week. But God had His hand on my life. And... As God would have it, I was in school, partied too much, and wound up in the mountains with my older brother. And he said, I want you to come live with me because you've completely embarrassed the family. And I'm not going to have it anymore. And he said, but I've got you a job. And so I get to his house on a Sunday, Monday morning. I go to work for this guy who hands me a 40-foot ladder and a wire brush. And he said, there's a 40-unit condo. I want you to scrape off all the old paint. And all I could think of was, thanks, brother. But during that time, I began to read Plato and a lot of the other philosophers. Because I thought, you know, I'm terrible at being a Christian. I mean, terrible. I keep blowing it. And I got tired of constantly asking God for forgiveness. But as I read the alternatives, I thought... Lord, there is nothing else out there that the world has to offer. And so I began to read my Bible. And that's when God began to do a work in my life that has continued to this day. For in reading that Bible, applied by His Holy Spirit, I began to see that it was not by my own works, but it was by the power and the ability of Jesus Christ Himself. 
There was no way that I could make myself good. And there was no way that I could offer anything wonderful to God. All I could do is just offer myself as I was and say, Lord, here I am. Use me. Cleanse me for your will. Well, I came to Albuquerque and I heard someone on the radio. And I really liked what I heard. And so someone invited me to church and I came to this church. And at the moment I arrived, I said, Ah, I am home. I am home. And that was some 17 years ago. And the first time that I entered this place, I had no idea that I would be doing what I'm doing right now in the position I am right now, at the time in church history that we're in right now. But I tell you one thing I have learned. I've gained a little more weight. I've lost a little more hair. But I am more convinced than ever that if there's any legacy that I want in my life as I go forward is I want to be known for how much love I have love for God, love for you, love for my family, love for my kids, love for my enemies, love for the world. Because when it's all said and done, ambition will only get you so far and it is wrought with so much pain. In the end, ill temper and always having to have things your way constantly destroy everything you try to build. Now, that's my story. My story isn't done. And some of you have a very similar story. Some of you have some amazing stories. In fact, over the last seven and a half years, I've got to know many of you very intimately about your walk in Jesus. And you have storybooks that are just living examples of what Jesus will do. Because really, it's not about us, is it? We like to say that it's not about me, it's about you. But in reality, it really is the story of what God does when a man or a woman, a boy or a girl will submit themselves to Jesus Christ and say, here I am. And many of you have beautiful stories. But there are some of you here tonight who have never even gotten on page one. And this is what I mean. You've been living in the world. You may toy with Christianity. You like to come to church. You may even listen to the Bible on the radio. But one thing is missing. And it's that critical issue. Your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. And that is page one in the story of the Christian life. And my friends, just like John, and just like myself, and just like many people here, our desire is that your joy may be made full. Now there's a technical phrase here at the end of verse 4 where it says, our desire is that your joy may be made full. It's interesting. In the ancient manuscripts that are used to come up with the text that we have right now. There is about an even amount of 
manuscripts that say this verse says, Our joy may be made full. The other half say, Your joy. One Greek word is hemon, and the other is humon. Very simple. I like it both ways. Because once you come to know Jesus Christ and you fully surrender to Him completely, I mean, that means everything, everything you've ever done, all of your will, everything that you are, your joy starts the process of being made full because the word for full here speaks about a completion. But there's another thing, folks, is that he said, if you read the other text, it says that our joy may be made full. Speaking of John and the other apostles and the other believers. And I can tell you something tonight. Those of you who are riding the fence, those of you who are wondering, man, I don't know if, 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 if this is right or if God is really convicting me. There is a house full of people here who say, if you turn your heart to Jesus Christ tonight, our joy will be made full and complete. Wouldn't you say so? Amen. I'm going to close in just a moment. And then we're going to ask you to stand. And um, we're going to give a call for those of you to give your life to Christ. It was Napoleon. Not Napoleon Dynamite. Although he's much more popular these days than Napoleon I, Bonaparte. In a discussion he had, he said these very telling words about Jesus. They're his own witness. He said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is not a man. Superficially, minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and whatever other religions the distance of infinity. His religion is a revelation from an intelligence which certainly is not that of man. The religion of Christ is a mystery which subsists by its own force and proceeds from a mind which is not a human mind. We find in it a mark, a marked individuality which originated a train of words and actions unknown before. He said Jesus is not a philosopher. For his proofs are miracles, and from his first disciples they adored him. He said, Alexander, Caesar, and Charlemagne, and I founded empires, but upon what foundation did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon what force? But Jesus Christ founded his upon love. And at that, this hour, Millions of men stand ready to die for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you love us. And Lord, you've prepared our heart for this very thing. And that is a new life with you. And Lord, with us tonight, we may have many who have never given their life to you. Lord, we may have those who have strayed from you and have lived in the weakness of sin. Lord, we pray that you would call your own to yourself tonight. 
do that work that you do and that we glorify your name for, that great and merciful love that you so graciously bestow upon your people. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.